Yo, this episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit GBT.com to learn more. What's up, Warriors? It's Dr. Z and Dr. Mike. How are you, Dr. Mike? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Dr. Z? I'm doing awesome, man. I'm doing awesome. Hanging in there during this pandemic. Yeah, it's getting old, but uh, we gotta we gotta stay strong. You know what else is gonna be strong? This episode. This episode, man. This episode is a is a is a big flex. We've got all sorts of cool stuff happening. I'm gonna talk a little bit about. You know, I think we're gonna have a little theme pop up during this episode, and it's gonna be hydroxyurea related. Yeah, that should be good. We have a great guest. Yeah, for sure. And, and hydroxyurea is like this buzzword, right? It's like there's no uh, middle road. It's either you love it or you hate it. It seems in the community is the the feeling I get from patients. Please love it. I, I listen to this episode. Hopefully afterwards you'll love it. We're going to try to give them some reasons to love it. But uh, yeah, exciting episode coming up. We've got Dr. Patrick McGann from Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And of course, we're going to have Dr. Mike do some work, teach us a few things. And we'll talk a little bit about what's happening on social media. Sounds good. Let's get to it, Dr. Z. All right. So now we're on to uh, my favorite part of the episode because I love social media and and now I get to hear Dr. Z, who is a bona fide world expert in social media. He's uh, frequently seen on the Twitters and the Facebook and he's going to tell us what's happening in social media. So Dr. Z, what's happening? You know, today I figured sticking with our hydroxyurea theme, I, I figured we we should gauge a little bit about what the discussion is happening around social media. You know, Dr. Mike, though, the thing about sickle cell disease, it reminds me of the story that we tell back home about six blind men who went to go figure out what an elephant was. They were told that there's an elephant in town and these six blind men said, let's go see what this elephant thing is all about. So one guy grabbed the trunk, one guy grabbed the tail, one guy touched the side of him. So the guy grabbing his tusk said, oh, an elephant is a spear. And the guy grabbing the tail said, oh, an elephant is a rope. And the guy grabbing the trunk said, oh, an elephant is a tree. And the guy grabbing the ear said, oh, an elephant is a fan. Basically, the, the point of that story is that all of us have this sort of this grasp on concepts that is very personalized to the situation that we're in. Hydroxyurea is a bad drug if something bad happened to you while you were taking it for you, right? Like that's your personal experience. And there are people who have had bad experiences. Their counts drop, right? They're, they're having tremendous abdominal pain or nausea, but that is such a small minority of patients. With anything that can happen, you know, the blind people could get stepped on by the elephant. There you go. The really interesting thing is that the patients who do well on hydroxyurea, which is the vast, vast majority of them, aren't necessarily as vocal or as out there in the open praising hydroxyurea as are the people who had you know a bad experience it's very similar to the yelp reviews right when you look at a yelp review it's usually the bad ones that jump up and are you know zero stars because there was a cockroach in their sandwich right for sure and i think too with hydroxyurea you know some of its big advantages are not what it does for you it's what it prevents from happening to you right so you know, if you go a year without having a pain episode, you didn't have a pain episode. That's great. It's a great outcome, but it's not a positive thing happened to you. It's taken away the negative thing. And I, I think sometimes you don't notice that it's harder to get excited about not having something bad happen to you than, than having something good happen. Absolutely. And we talk so much about pain. 
right? We talk about pain, but as our as our friend and colleague, Dr. Wally Smith says, is as soon as you're born, the hum of sickle cell disease starts. And that hum of sickle cell disease may not always be causing you pain, but but it's going and, and it's happening in your brain and your liver and your kidney and your bones. Um, that hum of sickle cell disease is continuous, whether you feel it or not. So medications like this that require to be taken every day that confer a long sort of big picture type of effect, I think are sometimes harder to get motivated about taking. I think, you know, if you take a medicine and five minutes later you feel better, you get a reward from it right away. If you take a medicine and it makes you live five years longer, that's probably a lot more important, but you don't ever notice it. Absolutely. We have two disclaimers though. The first disclaimer is Dr. Callahan, have you ever received money for prescribing hydroxyurea? I have not. I have not either. Number two, have you ever actually taken hydroxyurea? No. Neither have I. Those are the two big disclaimers. So while we can pontificate and opine about hydroxyurea, we also have a different experience from patients who are actually taking the medication. Right? We can present to you the science that's out there, what we know, but of course we don't have that personal experience. But today I want to talk about a few things that I saw on social media that I think are worthy of being addressed. So the first thing is, Dr. Callahan, is hydroxyurea chemotherapy? Yes. Are the effects of hydroxyurea also related to sort of, what? first of all, what is a chemotherapy? Why do we call it a chemotherapy? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a chemical that's a therapy. Often we use the term chemotherapy to talk about treatments for cancer. That gives things a bad name because some of the treatments for cancer are very toxic and they cause lots of side effects, but you're willing to tolerate that because cancer is bad. And if you don't take them, you know, the the cancer will advance and and, uh, you'll have bad outcomes. But not all chemotherapies are the same. So you know, there are some chemotherapies that are really toxic. There are some that are really not toxic at all. Um, and I would put hydroxyurea more in, in the latter category. I mean, every medicine, even, you know, everything's got side effects. Like lactose is a normal sugar that's in milk, but for some people, it causes them a lot of problems. So anything can have side effects and hydroxyurea is included in that potential side effects. In general, people tolerate it very well. They have not a whole lot of uh, side effects, if any at all. And on the whole, they're much better off for being on hydroxyurea in spite of the fact that it's known as a chemotherapy. And, and you know, one thing that um, frequently I see on, on social media is that it, it's a drug that increases your fetal hemoglobin. And that's true. That's very true. But that's not all it does. It actually does a lot of things, right? So I was recently reading a a paper that talked about how immediately, basically, from the time you take hydroxyurea, the way hydroxyurea breaks down in your body creates this sort of increase in this compound that we call nitric oxide. And that causes dilation of your blood vessels. That makes the flow through them a little bit cleaner. And that um, was a really good reminder to me that there are different ways that hydroxyurea works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it also lowers white blood cell counts. That's why it was used as a chemotherapy. And we know white blood cells are, are so involved in uh, vaso-occlusion and, and damage, and people with sickle cell have high white blood cell counts um, because of a lot of inflammation. 
And so by lowering those white blood cell counts, it prevents some problems. It, it increases the size of the red blood cells and makes them more hydrated. Um, it has a mild antioxidant effect. It works on nitric oxide. So I, I think, you know, we maybe got lucky that we found this drug that increased fetal hemoglobin, but it was also working positively in a lot of other ways. Yeah, absolutely. So, it, it, I mean, it, and it's established itself as such a game changer that the new therapies that come out, the, the ones that have come out so far, Andari and Adacvio and Oxbrita, all are sort of, literally, all of those trials were done with about two-thirds of the patients that were studied being on hydroxyurea. And sort of with this understanding that when we have this new therapy discussion, we're not having a hydroxyurea or discussion, we're having a hydroxyurea and discussion. I think that's really telling of how important we all feel that hydroxyurea is. Yeah, and I, I really think that we're going to move to a future that includes multiple therapies maybe at the same time. Because hydroxyurea is great. It's the best thing we have right now, but it's not a silver bullet. It's not magic. It prevents a lot of complications, but not all of them. It extends your life, but not completely to normal. So I, I think, you know, that's a good reason to study the addition of new medicines to hydroxyurea. And I think in the three that came out, fortunately, they all work with hydroxyurea and you get added benefit on top of the benefit you're already getting from hydroxyurea. So I, I think that is a sign that maybe, you know, combination therapy is, is part of our future. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, you know, I just kind of wanted to really address this concept that I keep seeing literally across all the platforms about hydroxyurea being um, for cancer patients. And my nurse puts on gloves before she administers it to me and it's going into my body. So how is this safe? All of those things are justified, right? In the thought process, if your doctor hasn't sat down with you and walked you through how this drug came about, right? Um, I mean, yes, it works like a chemotherapy. It reduces your white blood cell count. It reduces your platelet count. That is a desired effect, actually, right? That is what we want. We want to see those counts come down. We don't want them to come down too low, which is why we watch labs. We monitor labs for patients who are starting this therapy. But that's the desired effect. We want to reduce that traffic jam that happens that results in vasal occlusion of white blood cells and platelets and sickle cells getting all stuck together. So you reduce sickling, you reduce your white blood cell count, you reduce your platelet count, and you make the blood vessel larger. All in all, that traffic jam gets a little bit better. So I, I, I really I feel sad for us as a provider community sometimes that we have not done enough to get information out in an effective way, in a way that is engaging and transparent. And um, I, think, I think that this sort of has given me a lot of opportunity to reflect on how I talk to my patients and what we talk about and how I give them information. What do you think about that, Dr. Mike? There's a lot to unpack there, Dr. Z. So I, I think it's really important that we build trust with our patients. I know you and I know I really only want to do what's best for our patients. Um, so when we're suggesting a new medicine, hydroxyurea or any other, any other medicine, 
Um, it's because we think it's going to help our patient, but we're, we're not uh, the sole decision maker here. I, I really believe in this um, shared decision-making model. I mean, we know a lot about sickle cell. We know a lot about medicine. Um, we have a lot of experience using these medicines. We know a lot about the profile of them, but our patients know a lot about them and their situation. And a lot of times they bring up very good points and really important things that can make our plan better and really tailor it better to their life. Um, and they have a lot of legitimate concerns. And in some cases, you know, they only know us a little bit. They've maybe not spent a lot of time with us and maybe they've had bad experiences in the past and people haven't been trustworthy or, and, you know, maybe that's not that they were being nefarious, but they were just not being careful or they were not taking the time or they didn't explain what they were doing well and there was miscommunication. So I, I think, you know, it's, it's so important on both sides. I mean, as physicians, we have to do our part and really have those discussions and answer those questions and, you know, identify the things that will help our patients and advocate for those and, and get them out in front of our patients. And our patients need to have on their side, they need to come see us and have those discussions and come with questions and um, be open. If you have concerns, you know, I, I think sometimes patients think, uh, Dr. C wants me to be on this drug. I'm afraid of this drug because of X, Y, Z. He's not going to like that. So I'll just agree to it, and then I'll walk out of here and not take it. And that, that's not good for either of us, right? And you don't have to agree with me. At the end of the day, it's it's your body, and, and uh, I'm not going to make you take some medicine. But if you have concerns about it, maybe I can address them. We can talk that out. I might still be saying you should be on this and you might still be saying, I, I don't know. I don't feel hundred percent comfortable, but if we have that discussion, we can, we can uh, get to where, get to where we should be hopefully, or, or at least know, know, you know, both be more informed about what's going on. And I totally get what you're saying. And I'm all for like open communication. And that's because I, I know you, I know how you interact with patients and I'm talking specifically about you, Dr. Mike, but I could see a lot of doctors out there being not approachable or difficult, right? I think that sometimes we, sometimes we give a free pass to some of our colleagues who, who may not be as easy to talk to as for example, you are in clinic, right? Um, so I think that there's a little bit of sensitivity that comes with provider training that may be missing in why there's so much distrust. Yeah, no, I, I see that a lot. A lot of times it's not even intentional. It's like, I know about this and you don't know about this and I'm telling you it's good, so you should just do it. And if you're you know, pushing back on me at all about it, then you're wrong and I'm right and you know, I'm angry about it. And it's, uh, it's a, you know, a bad way to be a doctor. I, I also get it sometimes the other way too, where, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to have a very civil conversation and address people's concern and they're angry at me because they don't want the answer that I'm trying to give. And they say, I know my body, I know my kids, you don't, you don't know them. And I, you know, that that's not wrong, but listen to what I have to say. Let's discuss it. You know, tell me why your kid is, is different and why this might not work for them or what your concern is. And uh, hopefully I can address that, but don't, don't shut me out because you disagree with me. 
Um, so I, you know, I think definitely, I unfortunately see too many physicians and we try to nip it in the bud with our, with our young physicians, but, uh, definitely see situations where people are not listening to each other. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think two-way communication is really important and, and being approachable on both sides is going to be key. All right. One last issue for you here. Keeps coming up on social media, going back to school for sickle cell disease patients. That's a tough one. I bring this up mostly because I want to sort of acknowledge that we're in a completely unprecedented time as far as what to do with a sickle cell patient during a pandemic that's this bad as far as returning to school goes. I don't have the answer. And I'm wondering if you do. Of, of course I do. Um, no, I'm, I'm uh, obviously kidding. No, I, you know, I think you've been in on some of the high level discussions about what, where uh, organizations should come out on that. And we've been talking as a group in our, our sickle cell center about where we should come out on that. And I think it's not that different than the discussion that's going on everywhere. Um, you know, I have five kids and you have two kids and I don't know if they're going back to school. I haven't heard any, anything. Yeah, I don't know either. There. I think the good thing is that so far we've seen that at least kids with sickle cell have done pretty well with COVID. I mean, we've had a few here who got, uh, who got COVID and um, we haven't seen kids get really sick. Now it can happen, of course. And I mean, we see with a lot of things, even the flu kids get really sick with sickle cell sometimes. So it, it can happen and you should do all the things that you should do. You should wash your hands, you should social distance, you should wear your mask. Um, but I think when it comes to the school question, it makes it in a lot of ways similar to the question for everybody who doesn't have sickle cell. And a lot of other things come into it. You know, do you have an older person in your house? Do you have other, do you have asthma on top of your sickle cells? I'm with you, Dr. Z. I don't have the right answer for this. Um, and I, I think, you know, we always have to keep in mind school's really important. I mean, yeah, for sure. For socializing, for yeah, absolutely. education, yeah, you know, absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's not a little thing to say, don't go to school, but for sure. It's um, a big we deal. So don't want people spreading a virus that could kill people. And you know, I got to say something. I mean, the, the sickle cell warriors and the caregivers uh, for those sickle cell warriors are crushing it as far as wearing masks and socially isolating. Honestly, I have not had one experience in clinic with a sickle cell patient or family that's not wearing a mask or refusing to wear a mask or is giving me a hard time about that. So kudos to you guys for for really empowering yourselves to stay healthy and taking control of this situation. I'm really proud of the whole community, man. It That has really been exceptional, honestly, in my experience and what I've been seeing as far as caregivers and families trying to protect their sickle cell warriors. It's, it's really been uh, amazing. Absolutely. And I, you know, I talked to so many families who say this hospital visit is the first time we've been out of our house, except to the grocery store in two months. And we've been, you know, following all the rules, washing our hands and doing everything that we can. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Mike, for hearing me out. Thank you, Dr. Z. Dr. Mike, I've got a good word for you today, man. It's really appropriate based on the guest who we're having on. Um, and that should probably give you quite a bit of a, a clue. Um, but this, this word goes way back. 
it goes way back. Not even, I mean, we're talking about even before you were born. This is um, quite literally a type of word that could take your breath away because it wants to grab all of your oxygen. Uh, I'm getting there, Dr. Z. Are you getting there? What's our word of the day? I gotcha. Fetal hemoglobin. That's right. It's two words, actually. Um, so fetal, um, you know, referring to the fetus, which is, you know, a baby in the womb. And hemoglobin was our word of the day in episode two. Um, so you guys know all about hemoglobin. You know, m- most of our adult hemoglobin is a hemoglobin called hemoglobin A, and it's made up of alpha units and beta units. And when we're babies in the womb, we make a little bit different hemoglobin. And so instead of the beta units, we have gamma units. So these are little pieces of proteins. They're very, very much like those beta units, but just a little bit different. And one of the ways they're different is there is a molecule that our hemoglobin uh, attaches to that makes it drop off oxygen a little bit more. If you... uh, get in a situation where you're not dropping off oxygen as well to your tissues, your body might make a little bit more of this so that it can drop off oxygen a little bit easier and it doesn't hold on to the oxygen as tightly then. So this is called 2,3-DPG or 2,6-DPG. So this binds actually right to your hemoglobin molecule and causes this change and we call it the oxygen dissociation curve. I think we mentioned that before. So it's just, you know, when the oxygen is low, How quickly do you drop off oxygen? How low does the oxygen have to get before your hemoglobin drops it off? In fetal hemoglobin, because it doesn't stick to that thing, to that uh, DPG, it it holds on to oxygen tighter. And that's by design, if you believe in that, or by evolution, if you believe in that. But it's a clever mechanism, and it allows the baby blood when it goes across the blood vessels in the placenta and comes up against the mom's blood vessels. The mom's blood vessels have adult hemoglobin in them. And so at a low oxygen, they drop off the oxygen, but the baby's hemoglobin, even at that low level of oxygen, binds the oxygen more tightly. So it picks up that oxygen. So it allows the baby's blood to steal the oxygen from mom's blood. And that way, um, you know, it helps with the fetal circulation. And usually after we're born, it, it flips a switch in uh, your, your genetics um, that we talked to Dr. Uh, Vijay Shankaran about um, when he came on that switches you over to your adult hemoglobin. So usually over the first few weeks of life, you start making your adult hemoglobin and stop making fetal hemoglobin. And by the time you get to be about one, you have very little fetal hemoglobin left. But in people with thalassemia or with sickle cell disease, um, sometimes we'll make a little bit more. And we talked today a lot about hydroxyurea and how it can increase your fetal hemoglobin. So why do we want to do that? Well, fetal hemoglobin doesn't have beta globin chains. It has gamma globin chains. And the sickle cell mutation is in those beta globin chains. So the fetal hemoglobin doesn't participate in sickling. So Usually when hemoglobin drops off that oxygen, it changes shape a little bit. They line up, form polymers. The fetal hemoglobin won't line up. It won't stick into that grid. It won't make the polymer. In fact, it interferes with it. It gets in the way of it. And so it stops the sickling from happening. You know how I think of that sometimes? Does it involve donuts, Dr. Z? No, it doesn't, unfortunately. But I could go for a donut and a coffee after this. Um, It deals with, you know, thinking of 
sickle hemoglobin has blue Legos sticking together and they're in a bucket. And if that bucket's the red cell, you decide that stick to each other. And then you go to the dollar store and get the off-brand Legos that are pink and throw them into the bucket um, that don't stick to the conventional Lego. It just makes it harder for the blue Legos to stick together. That's how I think of fetal hemoglobin in my simplistic way. All right. So there you have it. Sorry. I totally interrupted your train of thought. Fetal hemoglobin, pink Legos. There you go. So much of what we talked about today um, really has to do with uh, fetal hemoglobin and hydroxyurea, which induces fetal hemoglobin. And there are some uh, new drugs in the pipeline working on just that to, to do that even better. Um, there are gene therapies where they're trying to either make your blood cells make fetal hemoglobin or just add fetal hemoglobin gene to your blood cells so that it will uh, produce fetal hemoglobin from that. So n- now you know about fetal hemoglobin. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike. I appreciate that. Warriors, there you have it. Fetal hemoglobin. On to the next segment. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. All right, Warriors, this is Dr. Z, and we've got a really special guest with us today from Cincinnati Children's Hospital. We've got Dr. Patrick McGann, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, works in the Sickle Cell Center, and really one of the best sickle cell centers in the, in the country, maybe even the world. Dr. McGann, I want to thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I, uh, I've been a big fan of your work, man, from uh, just from the get-go. And, and as I was going through your publication history yesterday, I didn't realize how many things I had missed along the way. But uh, you have done so much for the sickle cell community, not only in the United States, but also globally. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. There's lots still to be done, though. So lots of work to be done, for sure. I want to hear a little bit about how Pat McGinn became Pat McGinn. Tell us a little bit about you know where you grew up and childhood high school, all that stuff. Tell us how you ended up being a sickle cell doctor. It's a somewhat winding story, partially across the globe or a lot across the globe, actually. I grew up in Boston. Both my parents grew up in Boston. All of my extended family was in the same zip code. Um, Nobody really ever left Boston. I grew up always wanting to be a pediatrician without really much more specificity to that. I went to college out west, out west being Worcester, Massachusetts, about 50 or 60 miles west (laughs) of Boston. Really stepping out of your comfort zone, huh? Yeah, that was pretty far for me, but it was okay with my mom at the time, so that's what we did. Anyway, I went back to Boston for medical school where I was at Tufts. I was in pediatric residency at Mass General Hospital around the time when I met my uh, my now wife, who's from Colorado, who kind of forced me to leave that comfort zone and, and at least get out of Massachusetts for a short bit. So I went to Memphis, Tennessee, to St. Jude for my pediatric hematology oncology fellowship, and at the time. I didn't really have much exposure to hematology or really sickle cell during my training, but my first two months of fellowship was was hematology only. Um, so I went into fellowship thinking I was going to be a brain tumor doctor that quickly faded away and really fell in love with sickle cell disease. Uh, I met a really great mentor, Russell Ware, who um, I still work with to this day. Kind of the rest is a bit history. When I was looking into 
um, how to specialize or choose research research path during fellowship. Sickle cell was an easy answer based on my experiences at that time and uh, working with Dr. Ware. And serendipitously, Dr. Ware had an opportunity to develop global sickle cell opportunities at the time, um, including in Angola. Also, kind of going along with my Bostonian sort of not moving very far. I didn't have a passport until I was like 28 years old and never really left the country. And then a year into my fellowship, I'm spending you know half of it living in Angola and then subsequently living there permanently for a couple of years with my wife and our Labrador. So wow, the world moved pretty fast. Wow, we're gonna have to die. I have, I have just based on what you've told me so far, I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> so the first thing I want to hear about before we jump to Angola is, you know, obviously uh, Russell Ware and his contributions to sickle cell disease has been, I, I, it's, not, it's not measurable, right? Tell me about your first in, in sort of interactions with him. How, how did he sell you on the concept of sickle cell disease? Yeah, he was a great, he's a great mentor. He's great with patients. He really takes the time. So he, you know, at every place I've been, it's been sort of the, the big boss. And, and sometimes these big bosses are uh, a bit intimidating, especially as you're a trainee new to a place. But he was not at all like that, kind of personally got along. He's easy to talk to. And he sort of explained his work. And obviously, his work speaks for itself. Immediately engaged me with some projects. And um, I think as good mentors do, you sort of select projects that are probably going to be successful and success builds on success. And he sort of really caught the bug, research bug. Yeah, yeah, seriously. So you come home and you tell your wife, I met this guy named Russell Ware, and we're going to spend some time in Angola now. Tell me how that went. How's that conversation? Yeah, she was pretty excited. Uh, she's much more worldly than I am. Uh, and obviously, it was great that she was able to join us. She was a key component of the program, living there and helping to develop our team there. So she loved it. But during the third year, of, third of three years of fellowship, I was in Angola for a month at a time, pretty much every two or three months. And she was at home with our dog, really, um, and working working her butt off herself. So then after completing fellowship, after about a year of that intermittent travel, we both went there and spent uh, much of two years there. And I continue to go back to this day. She's um, been back. She still works with the team. We at least partially learned Portuguese. Uh, it's been a pretty wild ride. Wow. That's really, that's really interesting. Tell me a little bit about sickle cell disease in Angola. Yeah. So it was really eye-opening. I'll start, I guess, by talking about sickle cell here in the U.S. very briefly, at least. You know, we certainly have long ways to go here in the U.S., but sickle cell disease has really become a chronic disease where we are trying to to tweak the chronic problems, but not a deadly disease, at least in children. In Angola, it's a deadly disease. Most kids who are born probably die within the first several years of life. Most of them probably die without a diagnosis. Um, This is why our first efforts were around uh, screening newborns, newborn screening where babies get tested for a variety of conditions, including sickle cell disease here in the U.S. is kind of commonplace, but in most parts of the world, it's it's not. In the U.S., sickle cell disease happens about one in 1900 or one in 2000 births. In Angola, where, where we did our newborn screening program, it happened about one in 66 births. So about one and a half percent of babies who were born had SS disease, um, and presumably most of those would die without a diagnosis. So there was lots of of work to be done, first recognizing the problem. Um, There's lots of health problems in Angola and other um, Sub-Saharan African countries and sickle cell disease is not often recognized. It's becoming increasingly recognized, uh, thankfully, but it's usually not among the top three or five or 10 priorities of, of 
healthcare systems? I won't lie. I mean, I, my my African geography is not very great, so I had to I had to I had to like pull up the map and get a get a sense of where Angola was. So you're, I mean, there's quite a bit of coastline there, in Angola. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, it was a it was a great place. We were in the capital city of Luanda, primarily um, going slightly to some other provinces, but I also didn't know where it was um, when I got there. I also didn't know that they, which language they spoke, and there's really not much English at all. So yeah, it's kind of s- southwestish Africa, and uh, right next to the De- uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, kind of is an under, uh, unrecognized. Most people, when I say I've been to Angola or was living in Angola, um, didn't know much about it. As far as sort of, so you first get to Angola, what is this? We're talking mid-early 2000s? Uh, it was 2011 when our program started, the summer, or our summer, about, so about now 2011, so it's that nine years ago. I think our program, our first baby was screened like July 11th, 2011, or something like that. And so when we got there, we had to find a team, which was not difficult. There are tremendous, tremendous people in Angola um, who uh, are hard workers. Here in the U.S., we think of finding people that are expertly trained as whatever, doctors, nurses, social workers, nurses, care managers. We have people with lots of degrees in our sickle cell program here in the U.S. And there we really just found a group of hardworking individuals that were trainable and passionate about the cause. And they all helped this thing grow. It was a core group of about five or six people who are still working in the program to this day and, and probably have um, helped to screen more babies than, than many other people ever in the world. So it's pretty amazing. So of course, newborn screening now has been set up basically in, in Luanda, certainly. What about the rest of Angola? How is care being delivered there? Yeah, it's a big challenge. Luanda is the big capital city. There's about 7 million people that live there, but there's um, probably 25 or 30 million people that live in the rest of the country. Um, Our newborn screening program started in Luanda because there was at least a sickle cell clinic there and some capacity to do this. And the intent was to expand it, and there are challenges. The project was initially funded through philanthropic support of Chevron, the oil company. There's lots of oil in Angola. collaboration with the Ministry of Health. And it's just hard for the Ministry of Health to pick up the program and really to expand it when they have, you know, 18 other problems. And then, you know, things like, you know, things that happen in Africa, there's an Ebola scare, there's COVID-19, you know, there's all these things that sort of throw a wrench into a program. So there's been a little bit of expansion. Certainly there's there's interest in doing it, but unfortunately any medical care, including sickle cell screening outside of the capital city is still quite limited. There's patients who come to the hospital in Luanda, the pediatric hospital, where there's a amazingly busy sickle cell clinic that provides kind of limited care, though it's been quite improved. They travel quite far just for that care. You know, with that perspective and, and obviously coming to Cincinnati and, and establishing your sort of footprint in this area of optimizing hydroxyurea, tell me a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about hydroxyurea, honestly. I want to hear sort of from you I want kind of the warriors to get a sense of what hydroxyurea means for sickle cell disease from one of the foremost hydroxyurea experts in the country. So, so, so why don't you why don't you tell the warriors a little bit in sort of e- easy to understand ways why hydroxyurea means what it does to them? I'd argue if you could find many people who are more passionate or or advocates of hydroxyurea than than I am, and I understand in the sickle cell community amongst providers and patients and the um, the sickle cell warrior community, there's lots of concerns and possible misconceptions about the medicine for lots of different reasons. And they were 
you know, fairly reasonable at the beginning when hydroxyurea was introduced, which was in the 1980s and into the 1990s. Historically, hydroxyurea was used to treat cancer. So it's, it, it has this chemotherapy label that um, really scares some folks. The doses at which we use it for, for sickle cell disease is much lower than, than it's used to treat cancer. We've used it now in many patients for decades, and there's been no long-term effects and really great benefits. And the benefits include uh, improved quality of life, decreased pain, decreased transfusions, improved survival. And this is in a group of patients mostly who started hydroxyurea kind of later in life. And when I say later, I mean, you know, if, if you're a teenager or a young adult with sickle cell disease and you haven't had any access to medicines like hydroxyurea, your body's been, been pretty beaten down for that time. Your organs, your kidneys, and your bone marrow and heart and lungs are kind of beaten down from those sickled cells. And um, hydroxyurea can do a lot to, to minimize things, but can't really undo what's been done. And so I've been a big advocate of starting hydroxyurea really as early as you can. There was a study called the baby hug study that was really important that took babies. So historically, hydroxyurea was really only reserved for people who had lots of complications. So mostly older patients who had a lot of pain or who had other events because at the time, this is 20 years ago, people were worried that there may be side effects. We don't know if there's side effects, but there might be side effects. And so we're just going to only use this if we really have to. We prefer not to. And then as we've begun using it more and more, it seems like we really should use it in everyone. Um, and so the baby hug study was a pretty bold study that took young infants starting at age nine months of age, and took half of them and gave them hydroxyurea and half of them and gave them a sugar pill, a placebo. Surprise, surprise, the ones that took hydroxyurea did better. They had fewer complications, their labs looked better. And I, don't, I frankly, not that I don't care about acute complications, I don't care that they had less pain in a two-year study period. What I care most about is that their body was healthier. So over the long term, if you start hydroxyurea before the effects of sickle cell really start to beat down your body, the effects are going to be uh, tremendous. So the Baby hug led to some guidelines by our U.S. National Institutes of Health uh, to start hydroxyurea early. And we've done that here in Cincinnati and done it pretty aggressively. So we've, we virtually have 99% of our patients start hydroxyurea in the first year of life and now have a group of about 60 patients who are now five, six, seven years of age who have lived a pretty, pretty much a healthy life. Their, their labs look great. Their fetal hemoglobin level, which is kind of the marker of hydroxyurea, before we used to think that maybe 20% was pretty good. And these patients have fetal hemoglobin levels of 40, 50, 70% for one of my patients last week. Really unheard of. And I think it has something to do with starting early and encouraging adherence. The conversation around hydroxyurea is different um, than it was before, where it was that kind of, we'll use it only if we have to. Now when I speak about it, especially to these young families, I talk about it as being lucky now to live in this generation where you can start this medicine early in life and your child can live a totally different life because many of them have access or have family members or um, people they know that have sickle cell and their life experience is just, is, is really often quite uh, quite poor. And I think that this new generation, as I like to think of them at least, who are starting early, are going to live a whole different life. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, that's very well put. We we, we definitely struggle a little bit here, at least locally, with getting patients um, to stay on hydroxyurea. And I think a lot of that is probably 
we um, we may not be presenting hydroxyurea in, in the way that we should be to those patients, uh, but but having conversations like this with people like you definitely inspire me to do better in that. I you know I saw that you also were an investigator in the Reach trial, and and Luanda is not too far from uh, Kinshasa, right? Which is which was the primary site? Yeah, there were four there sites. Were four sites. Uh, yeah. Yep. The the primary author of that of that Reach paper was from Kinshasa, but the Reach study. Uh, is ongoing still. Uh, it's a study looking at hydroxyurea in Africa, in Angola, in the Congo, in Kenya, and Uganda. This started maybe 2014 or so, five or five or six years ago, maybe. And at the time, and kind of pretty much still to this day, hydroxyurea, is, it's almost like turn back the clock. In the U.S. in the 1980s and 90s, we were worried about hydroxyurea, didn't know how to dose it, didn't know if it would be safe, didn't know if it would be available or who we should use it in. And in Africa, People were still worried. It was chemotherapy. It required some laboratory monitoring. Um, these children are often um, malnourished. They have exposure to infections. They may not have all the vaccinations that we have. And would hydroxyurea be safe? Could you monitor labs appropriately? And would it work? And as was shown in that publication uh, last year, it really did and continues to this day. It's a remarkable medication. It, it improved mortality in these kids. It reduced the amount of malaria they got. It decreased all of their complications. And if you have patients who have issues with medication adherence, they should get on a plane and travel to talk to some of our patients who live in Africa who really have a different sense of appreciation, I think, of, of new medicines. Because adherence, which we ask about, and the patients in, in these African studies kind of laugh at us a bit saying, "What do I give the medication? Of course I do. Why would I not take the medication that you prescribe? So it's totally bit of a different culture about adherence. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I mean, I, I remember seeing that adherence, the, the adherence rate. I mean, I think the first, it was the presentation at ASH that Dr. Shalolo gave. I couldn't believe it. I mean, that, that's just remarkable, remarkable adherence. So of course, you continue to work on hydroxyurea and try to improve our understanding about it. And, and I want to talk a little bit about your hydroxyurea optimization through precision study. Tell us a little bit about HOPS. Yeah. So um, I think in addition to so medication adherence is the number one, two, and three most important reasons why hydroxyurea doesn't work. It doesn't work if you don't take it every day. The second reason is that you don't pick the right dose. Kind of along with the historical perspective of hydroxyurea as this medication we need to be careful with, dosing is kind of wimpy. And the dosing has been um, really historically to, to get some benefit, but really avoid any potential toxicity. And the toxicity really mostly are just numbers in a blood count. Patients don't really have any clinical toxicities with hydroxyurea. And if you look at their, what's called pharmacokinetics, this is how if you take hydroxyurea and you measure levels in the blood, how people get different levels is so variable from patient to patient to patient. And we see that in the dosing. Um, some patients can, can tolerate a dose that's double or triple the dose of someone who is the same size as them. And so these days, there's a precision medicine initiative here in the United States that President Obama created. There's all sorts of initiatives to try to optimize medications for just specific patients. And so uh, recognizing that there's lots of variability in hydroxyurea dosing and pharmacokinetics, we created this process to try to do that. Um, we did it here in Cincinnati in about 50 patients, young patients, in a study called TREAT. And these are the patients that we started at a young age. We started them at doses that were meant just for them, and the uh, results were remarkable. These are the patients I mentioned with super high fetal hemoglobin levels who are living pretty much a normal life. 
So the follow-up study, HOPS, is trying to validate that. So when you do research, if you do it in one place without really a, comp a direct comparison, it's hard to say what the reason, whether that's really going to happen elsewhere. And so HOPS is happening at several places across the U.S., hopefully Detroit at some point. I really soon. hope so, man. I really hope and so. And we give half the patients kind of regular dosing, which is based on your weight, and we give half the patients this individualized dosing, and we'll take a look at their labs after six and 12 months and their clinical events and um, see if there's something to this dosing, the, the individual dosing. Because uh, if there's something to it, then we can work to make it available outside of the setting of research um, or similar uh, investigations trying to look at adults because adult dosing is also super variable. And my suspicion is that a lot of adults who don't quote unquote, don't respond to hydroxyurea, probably just aren't receiving the right dose. The patient really has their right dose, their sweet spot. I think we can do better. That's very, very interesting. Yeah, I really hope that we can uh, quickly get this going in Detroit because I'm very jealous of these uh, sort of hydroxyurea numbers you're giving me that your patients are, uh, are, are showing. I wonder what type of resources beyond just talking to patients about hydroxyurea at Cincinnati Children's, what other type of resources do you guys provide patients as far as reducing barriers to access hydroxyurea as far as um, helping them sort of navigate the system, get to clinic appointments, things like that. Yeah. So you bring up a, a really important point for our sickle cell patients who face many, many challenges with social determinants of health and having a multidisciplinary team in, within a sickle cell center is so important. And we're lucky here in Cincinnati to have that. And I think every, every center um, should really be have, or if they don't have, then should be provided resources through some, some mechanism to support our patients who need so much and to try to minimize barriers to their care. So our, our team includes not only doctors and nurse practitioners, but also we have uh, social workers and psychologists and nurses who we call care managers who kind of are the um, direct link to our patients in the clinic. And, you know, we bend over backwards to try to get them what they need and to um, address any issues and getting them Ubers to clinic or um, helping them get their electricity turned back on or helping them get their prescription or their prior authorization. You know, we can do, we, we try our best to do as, as much as we can for the families, which I, I think uh, goes a long way, but I think there's still, you know, it's still, it's still a challenge. And I, you know, I worry the most about taking such good care of these young kids. And then the challenges of transition uh, as they become older is, you know, is a huge, huge problem. How is that in Cincinnati? Do you have adult providers who can uh, yeah. take over the care of those patients? And do you have a robust transition program? And what age are you doing that at? Yeah, it's not ideal, to be honest. I mean, I don't think it is ideal in many places. We have several providers who um, take care of sickle cell patients. We're working to improve our transition program. I think that we're, we're making some strides. We actually just had a a teleconference or Zoom meeting this, this week of a group that my colleague and uh, clinical director of our sickle cell program, Dr. Charles Quinn, uh, coined SC Cincinnati. There's a soccer team called FC Cincinnati, and so he called it SC Cincinnati. <laughs> and so this, like this included our multidisciplinary team here and really any other provider in the city. And, and I was quite impressed, actually, because it's been a bit of a black box to me as to who takes care of patients when we transition. And there was you know three or four different programs, and there were different types of providers and people. And um, we're going to try to keep this momentum to try to unify things because it's, it's an ongoing challenge. We're hoping to do better. Thanks so much for joining us.
Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. Visit GBT.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell disease. All right, Warriors, we are on to our next segment, and our next segment is um, a little bit different. Usually, Dr. Mike breaks down a you know an important piece of the literature that guides and changes the way that we think about sickle cell disease and how we treat sickle cell disease. And usually, it's Dr. Mike sort of um, opining about you know what he thinks about the paper. But today, we're really lucky because the first author of that paper, Dr. McGann, is actually going to join him as he sort of jumps through this uh, manuscript. So Dr. Mike and uh, Dr. Pat McGann, um, I'm going to pass the ball over to you guys. Great. Thanks, Dr. Z. So I, you know, have gone through a lot of different uh, kinds of papers in this segment. I'm really excited today because I don't have to take you through the whole thing. We have the actual expert on himself. So Dr. Pat McGann was the first author of this study, and it's almost 10 years ago, so that must have been a pretty early paper for you. And for our warriors out there, in academic medicine, we get very fussy about this author order. People fight about it. It's an issue of contention. It's because the person whose name goes first is usually the person who did all the work and, and should get most of the credit. And then the person whose name goes last is usually the person who kind of steered it and, and is the person who came up with the money for it and stuff too, in terms of you know writing the grants or supporting it. And then a lot of the people in the middle maybe contributed a lot, but uh, they don't get as much credit for it. So um, that Dr. McGann is the first author of this means it was really his work and he, he steered this. So I'm really excited to talk to him about it. And this is a paper that I bring up a lot. I think we have patients in clinic and we uh, want to start them on hydroxyurea. And there's a lot of information out there. Some of it's not the most helpful. And so we'll have people say, I don't know if I want to go on hydroxyurea. I heard it causes cancer. Um, and so th that's maybe the background of this paper. And I'll, I'll uh, pass it over to Dr. McGann. How did you get involved in this and what prompted the study? Yeah, thanks. This is an oldie but a goodie, I think is a good term for it. So I mentioned earlier that when I first started the research time during my fellowship, when I was just getting into sickle cell, that Dr. Ware was good at um, finding, finding he still is good at finding projects that are likely to be successful. And um, and this was one of the early ones. The baby hug study I alluded to earlier took about 200 kids and gave half of um, young kids starting at age nine months hydroxyurea and half of them got placebo or a sugar pill over the course of two years. And there were lots of conclusions and lots of papers written about this study, and it helped to change the way we use hydroxyurea now. As you mentioned, one of the, since the beginning, concerns of hydroxyurea is that it might cause cancer. I'm just typing in now, you know, everyone goes on Google. Whenever I see any patients, I ask them what they found on Google that we didn't talk about. So I'm typing in, does hydroxyurea cause into Google? And Surprise, surprise, Google does not say, does hydroxyurea cause a good life? Does hydroxyurea cause an increase in fetal hemoglobin? Does hydroxyurea cause reduction in my pain? Nope. Does it cause cancer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I know the patients are looking at this, and this information is out there, and it's, it's, I, I don't ignore it. It's worth talking about. Um, the cancer relationship with hydroxyurea, so it's a historically a chemotherapy drug, so it prevents cells from breaking down and, and dividing as normally they do. The doses we use in sickle cell are really not tremendously high. 
And whenever there's any medication that is going to be used for cancer, there are really rigorous studies where they give mice and they give cells in a laboratory, you know, huge amounts of these medicines to see if anything bad happens. And, you know, there's a paper or two that say that if you give cells or mice like ungodly amounts of hydroxyurea, that um, those cells might turn into cancer cells or something. And so that's why this warning exists. There's been hundreds, thousands of people now treated with hydroxyurea for dozens of years, and there's no signal that it causes that clinically. Um, 10 years ago, this was um, a little less known and, and a bit more of a concern now than it is now. And this, this study um, took samples from patients throughout the study at the beginning of the study and at the end of the study. Um, and remember that half of them got uh, hydroxyurea and half of them did not get hydroxyurea. And there's no perfect way. Nobody got cancer, but these are young kids um, clinically. But you can take the cells and see if there are mutations in the cells and see if the cells, the chromosomes inside of the cells break, or if there's anything to suggest that the cells or the DNA might be going wrong such that cancer might be a possibility. So you really look deep into these samples to see if the things that happened before people get cancer, the things that cause cancer yes. were happening. You looked at chromosomes breaking or mutations happening yeah. in the DNA. And in the, in the um, cancer world or the way that people look at carcinogenicity, meaning likelihood to cause cancer or mutagenicity, likelihood to mutate, to change the cells. These are the, the assays that were used in this paper on these patients were the ones that people use. They're, not, they're probably not perfect, but they're what we have in a laboratory setting. And uh, importantly, these essentially showed that there's no change. Um, and if you just look at anybody's cells or chromosomes or DNA over time, there's going to be some things that change and chromosomes that break, they probably don't mean anything. So it's the placebo arm, the arm that didn't have hydroxyurea is so important. And there really were no suggestion that hydroxyurea does this for young, for young children. This is important because now when we're using hydroxyurea more and more and more, if a patient with sickle cell gets cancer, it's going to happen. People get cancer. Unfortunately, if the patient gets cancer, if it's a whatever, a 40-year-old with sickle cell who gets some form of cancer, unfortunately, and is on hydroxyurea, the immediate linkage is going to be that hydroxyurea caused this, but that's not really the case. And so I think this is sort of a scientific way to, to show us that hydroxyurea appears safe, that the cancer-causing potential of the medication, uh, especially in young kids, is not high. But I think actually 10 years later, nine, 10 years later, really the clinical experience, the expanded use where hundreds and thousands of people have been treated over long, long periods of time. If this really were a cancer-causing drug, we would have seen it by now. Even when I patients uh, bring this up or I talk to patients about it, even if there were a minuscule risk of some cancer, which I don't think that we have any evidence, I think that the benefits, the short and long-term benefits of hydroxyurea for sickle cell disease far outweigh the potential risk of cancer, which is probably minimal or zero, essentially, as far as we can tell. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's so hard, like you said, if that 40-year-old comes down with a cancer and 40-year-olds come down with cancer sometime and they happen to be on hydroxyurea, then that'll wind up on social media and people will in it. And if there's another patient who's 40 and develops cancer and never took hydroxyurea, that doesn't wind up on social media. Nobody says, 
well, they didn't take hydroxyurea. That's why. And they shouldn't. There's no evidence of that either. But it's, you know, hard to prove a negative. And that's why I think the study was so great. You look at, you know, a pretty large number of patients who had a big exposure to hydroxyurea in a really granular way, look at the things that cause cancer, and you don't see them there. So I, I, I often... Uh, bring up this study with my patients when they when they ask if hydroxyurea can cause cancer. I say, you know, not only do we not see it in all of the patients over all this time who've been on hydroxyurea, we don't see the changes in the DNA even um, that could lead to it. So I re- really uh, appreciate you discussing this paper with us, and, and I, I love that it's out there. And I, I'm so impressed with Baby Hug. I mean, it was a great study but also how how the team thought of all of the side projects that could come out of it and really made 20 you know pretty interesting papers out of one study it's fantastic yeah and i th- it's so important and i think i mentioned earlier that we've really taken the baby hug results and the guidelines to start hydroxyurea early to heart and when we talk to our families when they first get diagnosed as a newborn we mention hydroxyurea as you know something kind of routine part of therapy and I'll tell them, you know, I think that these things are out there on Google, on the internet, on Facebook groups or wherever they are. There's information that hydroxyurea causes cancer or whatever, and you have to address them or you'll, you know, to gain trust with the family. You don't want them to find out this information elsewhere and to let them know that, you know, you know, these things are out there and to give them rationale as to why it's out there and why it's not as important or why it is important. With these conversations, really, um, we really change the way we talk about it and have you know, virtually universal acceptance of this as just kind of a vitamin that patients will take starting in six or nine months of age. I think that's really important because it is, you know, when patients go on amoxicillin for an ear infection, it doesn't even help that much. But we never talk about like, oh, you could have an anaphylactic reaction to a penicillin agent, or you could get clostridium difficile and have GI bleeding. You know, maybe you want to take this because it might help with your ear infection. But I feel like that was always the dialogue around hydroxyurea, in spite of the fact that it's a hugely beneficial and really safe and well-tolerated medicine. But you're right, because that's out there, you have to discuss those things. Um, we've been lucky. Wanda Sherney, who runs our Sickle Cell Disease Association chapter, put together a nice glossy handout about hydroxyurea that goes into all of those things, I think, in a really balanced way. And, and you know, our patients know her, um, their families know her, there's a lot of trust there. So I, I think that's helped us a lot um, in increasing hydroxyurea use at early ages in our clinic. And uh, we're, we're seeing differences. I mean, we're definitely seeing fewer people with abnormal transcranial Dopplers, fewer people having strokes, you know, people growing better, less pain episodes, less sepsis, you know, it's a really remarkable benefit. Yeah, it's such a, a an unusual situation. There's really few other diseases. I often discuss this when I'm talking to students or residents, where you have a really effective medicine that is only used in a portion of the population. There was a study that looked at kids in the U.S., and I think it's among adults. There was a study in the last year or two that showed that I think 11% of adults with sickle cell are prescribed it, and maybe 47% of children, which is crazy. You know, if you have diabetes, you take insulin. If you have asthma, you take inhalers. If you have whatever, cystic fibrosis, you take your appropriate treatments. And, And for sickle cell anemia, at least for hemoglobin SS disease, really everyone needs this medicine. And uh, I think we have decades and decades and decades of evidence, including this study, but not limited to the baby hug study, showing that it really works. Like I mentioned earlier, the dose is so important. um, And I think that effective dosing goes a long way, because I think if you 
kind of wimp out with the dosing, then the effects won't be as good. And if the effects aren't, the effects aren't as good, the patient won't buy into it and or the provider won't buy into it. And then sort of the circle begins. And so we are pretty aggressive, not only about using it early in life, but using the right dose. And really the only patients that don't respond are the ones that don't take it as we tell them to for adherence. I've got a practical question for you. Are you guys using Cyclos at all? Or are you guys just compounding solution of hydroxyurea for your pediatric kids? Yeah, so we use a lot of, we use mostly liquid. We've, uh, so Cyclos, for those that might not know, is a dissolvable tablet form. So hydroxyurea comes in capsules, which are hard for young kids to take. Um, you can open it up. And in, in our African studies, we actually use capsules where you can open it up and mix it, which is actually kind of funny because we have teenagers here in the U.S. who can't swallow pills. And we have toddlers in Angola and other places who are figuring it out. So I think you can actually, it turns out you can teach people to swallow pills or to, to mix things with t- capsules or whatever. The dissolvable cyclos form, um, we've used pretty sparingly, mostly for older adolescents who have some problem with taking the capsule or think that they have discom- or some issue with the tablet. The liquid is, is easy to take. We have a, it, the, the problem, biggest problem with the liquid is that you can't get it at like a CVS or a Walgreens or a, a standard retail pharmacy. So our hospital pharmacy makes it but doesn't mail it. We have a mail, a couple of mail order pharmacies in the area that will mail it to patients' houses, which is good. But we primarily are using liquid. Liquid is also makes it much easier to titrate the dose by, you know, 10, 20 milligrams at a time. So we mostly are using liquid in our young kids. Great. Well, thank you so much for going through this. You, this is usually my job. Amar sits back during this session. Uh, so I, I really appreciate you, you going through your study with me. Of course, I'm happy to. You know, Dr. Dr. McGann, I just want to thank you once again for taking some time out to talk with our warriors and then spread the message on hydroxyurea. Thank you for fighting the good fight and, um, you know, tackling some of the dis- misinformation that our patients see about hydroxyurea. Sounds great. I'm happy to be here. I look forward to coming up to Detroit and getting you hopping soon. Yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward to the same, man. For all the yeah. warriors out there, follow Dr. McGann at P.T. McGann, M-C-G-A-N-N on Twitter to learn more about hydroxyurea. Man, oh man, that was a really, really good episode. Packed full of hydroxyurea. I like it, Dr. Z. Yeah, uh, man, Dr. Pat McGann, just he inspires me to get you know, all the information out on hydroxyurea and um, have these conversations every single day. Yep. He's doing a lot of important work in Cincinnati. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, like I said earlier in this episode, man, it's really one of the top sickle cell, academic sickle cell centers in the country. Well, Dr. Mike, I want to thank you for sharing some of your expertise with us, helping break down some difficult concepts. And I hope that you guys, uh, I hope you share this episode with somebody who can learn about sickle cell disease, who needs to know more about sickle cell disease. And I hope you follow us at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and at Imagineer. Also, make sure you give a follow to uh, Dr. Pat McGann at PT McGann on Twitter. That's all we have for you guys today. Keep living well with sickle cell.